This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by Artbase. Are you managing an art collection or an artist studio or a gallery? Is it time to bring your collection management skills up to a professional level? Well, Artbase is the right software to manage your art business. Artbase allows you to track your artworks and contacts in an easy-to-use, powerful database. Enter your data once, and you can use that data to generate reports, offers, contracts, and so much more. They've got a brand new version out with a whole new look that can be used on the cloud from any location on any device. So what are you waiting for? Go to artbase.com today to learn more and be sure to mention Art Tactic for a 15% discount. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. Hope everyone's doing well and staying safe. I know things are still pretty difficult in a lot of different locations, but things are looking up finally in certain places at least. In the UK, the lockdowns finally ended, and what that's meant for the art world is that galleries have reopened after being closed for several months. We know the vaccine rollout's occurring at different paces in varying locations. We hope everyone can get it in the near future, and we hope we can see each other again real soon at an art fair or a gallery or some other art world event. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the Andy Warhol Authentication Board closing, It was a really significant event that's shaped the Warhol market and actually had an impact on several other reputable artists' markets. And given the upcoming anniversary of this major event, we invited Richard Polsky on this week's episode of the podcast to chat with us about what it was like to get a Warhol authenticated by this board, how the closing impacted the Warhol market, and how Richard ultimately launched his art authentication business in hopes of trying to replace this authentication void in the marketplace. If you can believe it, Richard was actually our first podcast guest ever, all the way back in 2009. For our listeners who were listening all the way back then, we appreciate your loyalty and thanks for sticking with us for so many years. We've had Richard on the podcast several times since then. We always enjoy having him on. He's an amazing storyteller and he has a lot of experience in the art market, especially when it comes to Warhol. He actually wrote two really entertaining books on Warhol, I Bought Andy Warhol and I Sold Andy Warhol Too Soon. Anyways, we hope you enjoyed the conversation with Richard. Thanks so much for listening. Richard, it's great to chat with you. How have you been? Fine, Adam. Just fine. Uh, finally emerging from this COVID world of ours, and uh, actually going to Santa Fe next week. Uh, it's the first trip we've taken in a year and a half. So, yeah, looking forward to reemerging, so to speak. That's great to hear. All the numbers show more and more people are getting the vaccine, and I'm hopeful that everyone feels comfortable to start traveling again, especially if it's to see art. So we're really excited to have you on this week's episode and chat about the Andy Warhol Art Authentication Board, what it was like when it was operating, um, what was the impact of its closing, and what things are like today now that it doesn't exist. So to start things off, tell us what were things like when the Authentication Board operated? How did it work? How often did collectors utilize the board? And how important was it to the Warhol market? Well, as you may know, Andy Warhol died in 1987, and he was only 58 years old. Uh, People forget how young he was. But when he died, he left behind an amazing trove of works. I mean, there were 4,000 paintings, 
thousands of prints, photographs, drawings. I mean, it was just amazing, his production. People had no idea. And a lot of people were worried about the value of these works. They were worried that if you owned a Warhol, you were worried things um, might take a turn for the worse because the market might get flooded if the estate released everything too quickly. But the estate did a terrific job. Um, they were very careful who they sold things to and what they sold to people. But what evolved was when Warhol died, there was a lot of confusion about the authenticity of his work. Some of it was based on using a commercial technique to make fine art, you know, the photo silkscreen process. And the assumption was there were more of them out there than there really were. What happened, though, when he died, uh, his business manager, Fred Hughes, who was crucial in the development of Warhol's career, took charge of authenticating his work. And you could, free of charge, bring things to him. He'd take a look at it. He evolved. I think it was a rubber stamp. He'd stamp on the back. You know, this is a work by Andy Warhol, Fred Hughes, and so on. But he soon became overwhelmed. People were showing up with too much work. And eventually, he hit on the idea of starting a Warhol Art Authentication Board with other experts on it in the field um, who he could rely on to do the right thing. And the process was pretty simple. From what I understand, is they met, may have been twice a year, and you had to sign all sorts of documents giving them permission that if your painting turned out not to be genuine, they were allowed to take a rubber stamp with red indelible ink and stamp on the back of it, denied, the word denied, okay? And at that point, well, that was that. You could never resell this thing. So you were taking a bit of a risk when you brought them a work. But you did sign a document agreeing to their terms. Um, when it comes to authentication, every estate has a different approach. I've never felt the right approach was to physically alter the work, but this is what the Warhol people chose to do. And they did a good job by and large. It was a hard job. I mean, you can imagine what would come out of the woodwork. I mean, you'd see everything from Andy's underwear that he claimed to have given someone at Studio 54 <laughs> um, to, you know, incredible uh, self-portraits done from the 60s, you know, and everything in between. And it was an overwhelming task. However, the problem was twofold. The first problem was, let's say you brought them a painting and it was denied. Obviously, you were upset. You were bummed out. You're like, oh, God, there goes my retirement money and all that or whatever. And you'd say to them, huh, why was it denied? And they wouldn't tell you. Their standard line was, we don't want to aid counterfeiters. All right. So then not only were you upset that your work was not genuine, but you were really upset that you didn't know why it was turned down. And in most cases, people just threw their arms up and went on their way and you know, it was more like, oh, well, but there were certain instances where people had enough money to challenge their findings and hire an attorney and attempt to sue them. And the thinking there was the estate was so valuable. I mean, when we're talking about 1987 money, it was appraised at approximately 500 million. Now it would have been in the billions. Um, you know, Warhol's work achieved amazing prices not that not that long after he died just kept going up and up and up and eventually broke the hundred million dollar barrier for a painting i think it was silver car crash big disaster painting but anyway um 
it got to a point where if you had enough money, you could challenge them and say, look, I think you're wrong. This painting is correct for the following reasons. And if you don't change your minds, I'm going to sue you. And this is exactly what this guy, Joe Simon did. And I know everybody who follows Warhol knows the name Joe Simon, and they know about his red self-portrait, and they know about the lawsuit. So we won't go into all of this. Uh, your listeners can certainly Google it and get the whole story, and it's been reprinted everywhere. But the outcome of all this was Joe did sue them. He ultimately lost, not because he was necessarily wrong. I believe he was right about it. It was a genuine painting but because he couldn't afford uh, to continue to pay the lawyer fees and the Warhol people allegedly spent $7 million by, they hired like one of the top law firms in all of New York and they outlasted them. They wore them down and that was that, but you know, it was the classic, they won the battle, but lost the war because right after they made an announcement that yes, we prevailed in this lawsuit, but no, we're not going to authenticate any more Andy Warhols. We're done. As they put it, we'd rather give the money to artists than lawyers. In other words, Andy established the Andy Warhol uh, Foundation for the Visual Arts. That's where he left all his money and paintings. And the money continues to be given out in the form of grants to museums and art writers and um, critics and so on. So Warhol did good things with the money. But the state people said no more. And right after that happened, it was a classic domino effect where the authentication boards for other major artists' estates, including Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, Roy Lichtenstein, Isamu Noguchi. I mean, it went on and on. They all decided, why are we doing this? Why are we exposing ourselves like this to future lawsuits? And by the end of 2012, they were all done. They all closed up shop. Ten years before that, I think it was 1996, the Jackson Pollock estate also closed. Um, it, it, the authentication business was nasty for these guys. Part of the problem also was they were such valuable estates. You knew that if you sued the Warhol estate, there was money there. They could afford to pay a judgment if you won but you wouldn't be suing them if they were minor estates. There was no money in that. But Basquiat, Herring, Lichtenstein, very valuable estates. Okay, so that's just a quick overview on what used to be. All of that history and context is really fascinating, so I appreciate you sharing that. And I do see the Warhol Foundation's perspective. Is this really how Andy Warhol wanted the money the foundation had to be used? No, of course not. The money is supposed to be spent supporting artists and grants and exhibitions, and that's what we see today. How did the art market and really relevant participants in the Warhol market react when the foundation announced they were closing the authentication board? Well, the, re the general response, as I remember it, was one of concern. Because there were a lot of people, let's say, who claimed to have owned genuine Warhols, but they never got around to submitting them to the estate. It was more like, you know, the manana attitude. Yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And before they got to it, it was too late. The ship had sailed, the, the, the authentication boards closed. So there were some people who were obviously pretty upset about that. But that was true for Basquiat and Herring and others as well. Um, the art market, you know, they, it was a bit of a shrug. I mean, yeah, it was not good news. But what it did was sort of tighten things up. 
the good news was that the Warhol people did put out an extensive catalog raisonné, but that created a whole different set of issues. In other words, if your painting wasn't in the catalog raisonné, you had a problem. And the catalog raisonné is excellent. They did a good job. But like any catalog resume, it's not perfect. I could show you paintings in it that are not genuine. I can show you unfinished paintings in it. And I can show you a fair number of paintings that should be in it, but weren't. And it was, it was a really crazy experience. I mean, it's still going on. I mean, this is, you can't imagine how much work this is. The Warhol produced mature work, let's say, I'd, I'd say, let's go back to 1961. And of course, he died in 87. They are only up to 1978. So they've got, you know, a ways to run to complete these volumes. All right. But I'll give you an example. It, they, they had a policy that if you called them and said, hey, I have an Andy Warhol painting, I'd like you to include in the catalog raisonné in a future volume. They would listen to you. They'd take your email or your call and they would examine what you sent them. And if they think it warranted it, they would try to see the painting in person. But here's, here's what would happen. I once got a call from a woman who claimed she was the wife of the hockey great, a guy named Rod Gilbert. Uh, some people pronounce it Gilbert. Anyway, Warhol, uh, back in the 70s, did a series of 10 famous athlete paintings, along with prints and small studies and whatnot. Uh, the collector, um, Richard Wiseman, who was the son of the famous Beverly Hills collectors, Fred and Marshall Wiseman, commissioned the series. So they had these athletes of the times. They had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They even had O.J. Simpson for the football player. They had Muhammad Ali, which became the most valuable by far of the group. And representing hockey was Rod Kilbert. Okay. Part of the fee each of these athletes for participating was they got a painting. And I believe the paintings were 40-inch square canvases, which even at the time, you know, had a fair amount of value. So I get this call from Rod Gilbert's widow. I, I guess he had died. And she told me the story about how the Warhol catalog raisonné people came to her apartment in New York to see the painting for a possible inclusion in a future volume. They looked it over, they took photos, they took notes, and they thanked her. So then she said to them, well, will it be included in the catalog? Because I want to be able to sell this at auction. And they said, our policy is you will know when the book comes out, when the appropriate volume is published. And this was the standard answer they give to people. And again, <laughs> I guess they have their reasons, uh, but it's, it was upsetting to her. And that's why she called me and she said, this is absurd. It's my husband." He was, everyone knows he was part of the series. Here's the painting. Why can't they just tell me this thing is the real deal so I can sell it? So the Cadillac Raisonnet, you know, has some policies that are tricky, to say the least. Yeah, I'm not sure why they have to be so cryptic and really not forthcoming, especially when you're dealing with someone who was a subject in one of the artist's works. But anyways, since the Warhol Authentication Board closed, and as you mentioned Subsequently, other really important artists' authentication boards also closed. The question really is, has this lack of authentication bodies in the art market had a severe impact on these artists' markets? Well, it's, it's hard to, you know, qualitatively say how it's impacted each of their markets. Um, in a general sense, 
it's it's part of you know why uh, you know just to fast forward why I got involved in, in authenticating their works. I mean, obviously, I thought I was qualified to do it, or I certainly had the connections to go to people who were also qualified if I needed second opinions and so forth and so on. I was able to successfully put this all together. But it's still, you know, if we're talking about now, 2021, what has been the impact 10 years out? The impact is there's still a lot of money on the table, okay? And by that, I mean there are a fair number of genuine works by each of these artists, Warhol, Basquiat, Herring, Lichtenstein, Pollock, and so on. Pollock less so, I should say, that, that are out there. And it's tricky for these people to navigate what to do. If, for instance, I determine a work is genuine, most people want to sell it. That's usually, I'd say 90% of the people say, great, great, now I can sell it, you know. And that's also a, a bit tricky. But I'll, I'll give you an example of what can happen. Um, there was a woman, her name was uh, Kim Reeder. She was a girlfriend of Basquiat's in the early days. And Basquiat, as you know, had a fair number of uh, girlfriends. He was, he was a ladies' man. Uh, the women loved him. And he sometimes gave away drawings to people he was involved with. Um, and she ended up with a very nice drawing. But she never got it together to go to the Basquiat authentication board when it existed. And by the way, it was won by Basquiat's father, Gerard Basquiat, who has now passed away. Again, this is what I talked about earlier. A lot of people just, time went on, they never got around to it. She was one of them. So a number of years ago, I got a call from someone who represented her, who was helping her try and get this work authenticated. And she did end up hiring us. The work checked out, it was right as rain, and typically she wanted to sell it. And the issue is the big auction houses such as Sotheby's, Christie's, and Phillips, they're genuinely, or I shouldn't say genuinely, they're generally looking for, in Worrell's case, a painting, let's say, that's in the catalog resume. Basquiat's case, an authentication letter from the original board. And they do this because even though they're very, they've been very nice to me and they've said nice things about me, they've made it clear that their businesses are good. They're offered valuable Warhols and Basquiat's and Herrings all the time that are either in a catalog raisonne or come with an authentication letter. And it makes their lives a whole lot easier than if I show them something. Well, then it means they're going to have to explain to their clients you know, what the situation is, and it becomes a bit controversial. And they're so successful, these big houses, they don't need to be doing this. But here's what happened. With Kim Reader's drawing, I showed it to Robert Manley and John McCord, who are over at Phillips. And they looked at it and they said, yeah, it looks good to us. But they really wanted a little more support, a little more backup on it before they agreed to auction it. About a year later, lo and behold, one of the big galleries, uh, the Neymar Gallery, I think it was Neymar Contemporary, over on Madison Avenue, mm-hmm. you know where the Carlisle Hotel is. They mounted a major Basquiat show, but it was focused only on his color Xerox works. I don't know how many of your listeners know this, but Basquiat did a fair number of paintings where he'd do color Xeroxes of his drawings, he'd paste them on his canvas, and then apply paint and oil stick and rework them. 
And he actually rented a color Xerox machine back in the day. People did these things. He had one in his studio. So the Neymar Gallery mounts this show, and they produced a very nice coffee table book. And lo and behold, Kim Reader's drawing received a full page, and it was the source material for one of the paintings in the show. The minute Phillips saw that, it was like, wow, this authenticated itself. We'll take it. And last year, it was sold in their November sale. So the long-winded answer to this is the closing of the boards certainly complicated for people who missed the boat and never got around to showing their work to these respective boards. Um, But if something is genuine, ultimately, it can be worked out. And that explains why you have your authentication business, really trying to fill this void that exists in the marketplace since the authentication board stopped operating and really being an option for collectors who never had their works authenticated. Yeah, it's just a little more work, you know, but I'd like to believe I've been able to fill this niche and help a lot of people. And uh, the other thing that's interesting to talk about is I know our tactic did this podcast with the director of the documentary made you look and this has been the biggest authentication scandal certainly in the last 10 years i mean with the fake pollocks and the motherwells and the rothkos and what was so fascinating is they were sold by one of america's leading galleries to some very wealthy sophisticated collectors it was it was fascinating because everyone was guilty the gallery should have known better based on the provenance of these things and the collectors should have known better on the you know the paintings were too good to be true and the backstories were beyond too good to be true but um i guess my point is you still have major problems with fakes and forgeries and you always will i'm not saying um how do i put it the, uh, as these artists become more and more mainstream and more and more valuable, and as art grows as an investment, you're going to see more and more problems with all this. And that movie clearly points it out. It's amazing what goes on out there. The dishonesty blows my mind. Yeah, it was a great documentary, and it was really fun having the director, Barry Averich, on the podcast a few weeks ago to chat with us about it. And to your point, especially if we're talking about deceased artists, where the artists aren't living, they can't authenticate something themselves, it's pretty scary. And if you're spending a lot of money, you better do your due diligence to make sure what you're buying is authentic. So tell us about your authentication business. Who are the different artists you're authenticating? In case any of our listeners maybe own an artwork by one of the artists and want to get it authenticated. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, we authenticate the work of seven artists. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we started out only doing Andy Warhol's work, and then the business evolved into Basquiat and Keith Haring, partly because the three artists were all friendly during the 80s, and there was an interchange of ideas among them, and a number of collaborative paintings were done by Warhol and Basquiat. So we worked with those three. We also worked with Roy Lichtenstein, Jackson Pollock, uh, Giorgio O'Keefe, which is a personal passion of mine, and most recently, we got involved with the outsider artist, Bill Trailer. Um, I could tell you a little about Trailer. I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with his name. Yeah, please do. I think if you're attending an outsider's art fair, 
you're most likely going to see the most works there by Bill Trailer and by Purvis Young. But I think Bill Trailer's more of a recent name. That's all of a sudden started appear- appearing frequently at fairs and in auctions and at gallery shows. So yeah, please tell us a little bit more. Yeah, Bill Trailer's been in the news a lot yet lately. Uh, there's a guy named Jeffrey Wolf who just did a Basquiat documentary. I think it's called Chasing Ghosts that's coming out this year. Um, also, uh, the David Zwerner Gallery, I think it was last year, they did a major Basquiat show, which came from the Louis Dreyfus collection. And the father um, amassed this amazing collection of these Bill trailers. And Julia Louis Dreyfus of Seinfeld fame was part of the show, and she came in and did an interview. But Bill Trailer briefly was an ex-slave who produced, they say, about 1,200 drawings that were done between 1939 and 1942, roughly in that range. And it's one of those crazy stories where he didn't start making art till he was 88 years old. He was illiterate and he was in Montgomery, Alabama, and he was basically a homeless person and started drawing everyday scenes that he'd witnessed. Men getting drunk, cats and dogs chasing each other, somebody walking around with an umbrella, you know, just ordinary, you know, scenes from, from their lives. And ultimately he, um, he, he got, uh, discovered by a young artist named Charles Shannon and Shannon was blown away by the beauty of these drawings. They were uncanny. They, they, it's just, you know, with art, it's hard to explain, but there's some works of art where you can't quite define what makes them so great. Trailer films in that category. On the one hand, they were naive looking, they were awkward, they were clumsy, but there was a genius to them. The linear quality, the placement on the page, they were very sophisticated works. Nobody could figure out how it was done. It was some sort of genius. Anyway, you flash forward. I actually did a show of these in the 1980s when I had a gallery in San Francisco called Acme Art. And you couldn't give them away. The top price for a trailer drawing was around twelve to fifteen hundred back in eighty four, eighty five. But ultimately, the work caught on. You know, I'm, I'm fast forwarding. I mean, there's a lot that happened in between. And not long ago, the Smithsonian mounted a major trailer retrospective, and his prices went went ballistic. A few years back, Steven Spielberg, who produced the movie The Color Purple, gave Bill Trailer, who was the collector of Trailer's work, to, um, what was her name, Alice Walker, as a gift for participating in the movie. Well, Alice Walker ended up selling it, and I think it might have been sold at Christie's, and it brought about $500,000. And suddenly, all these trailer forgeries started coming out of the woodwork. All right? And I got a call from a guy named John Ullman, who was one of the key trailer dealers, just saying, wow, do you want to get involved with this? Because we know you were early and showed this work you know, back in the 80s. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do this. So we're now authenticating Bill Trailers. Um, anyway, also in answer to your question, if your listeners are interested in pop, uh, contacting me, um, they can reach me via my website, which is richardpolskyart.com, or they can send me an email to polskyart one, P-O-L-S-K-Y-A-R-T, and the numeral one at Gmail. But go to my website. You can see a picture of me with Andy Warhol in the 80s, back when I used to have a full head of hair. It's like I look at this picture and I go, geez, what happened? 
I love that picture. It's a classic. It's a, yeah, it's classic. It was really funny, the whole thing. It's the only time I met Warhol, I bought a painting from him. It was a dollar sign. And I remember it was $6,500 retail, and I got it for $4,500. It was a 20 by 16-inch dollar sign. And I remember selling it for 6500 and making a $2,000 profit and thinking, boy, am I a great businessman or what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's probably worth half a million now. <laughs> but yeah. So it goes. Exactly. But anyway, yeah, it'd be great. I'd love to hear from anyone who has worked by any of those seven artists and is interested in hiring us, and we could certainly discuss with them how we work and what our rates are and so on. Richard, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You're welcome back anytime. It's always so entertaining to have you on as a guest, and we're really happy to hear that everything's going well with the authentication business. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to ArtBase for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Are you managing an art collection, an artist studio, or gallery? Is it time to bring your collection management skills up to a professional level? Well, ArtBase is the right software to manage your art business. ArtBase lets you track your artworks and contacts in an easy-to-use, powerful database. Enter your data just once and use that data to generate reports, offers, contracts, and much more. They've got a brand new version out with a whole new look that can be used on the cloud from any location on any device. So what are you waiting for? Go to artbase.com, that's A-R-T-B-A-S-E.com to learn more, and be sure to mention Art Tactic for a 15% discount.